You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading is from Proverbs chapter 4. When I'm done reading this text, I will state this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. Proverbs chapter 4. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, He taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction and do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life for those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. But put away from, your crooked, but put away from you crooked speech. And put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is the word of the Lord. And now turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And we'll be reading verses 12 through 17. So then, my brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, and we'll get going. So, Father, we come to you again as children in need. We come to you as those who need wisdom. We need you to impart wisdom to us, to teach us wisdom, and to even create in us a longing and a desire for wisdom, the kind of desire described in these verses. And so, God, come and teach us this summer how to live well, how to live with skill, how to live fruitfully in the world. In your name we pray, amen. So we have returned this summer, um, as, we, as is our habit, uh, to studying together the book of Proverbs. And so every summer we take um, a handful of weeks, we go back to the book of Proverbs, we examine how does the, the Bible itself, how does God, um, in his kindness and mercy to us, um, instruct us on wisdom. Um, wisdom simply means um, God's instruction for how to live well, how to live faithfully in the world that God has made, that God has designed. Uh, but then the question arises, what does it mean to live well? Um, I, would, I would hold out to you um, that to live well is to live fruitfully in the world, um, to live a life that bears actual fruit and meaning and goodness in the world that God has designed, that God has made. In other words, God has not simply um, uh, forgiven our sins and kind of left us um, to live largely fruitless lives. Rather, God has forgiven us our sins. He's adopted us as sons and daughters um, into his family. And he now instructs us as a good father um, um, to his children, um, how do you live well? How how do you make your life bear fruit in this world, Um, all kinds of fruit in this world? So the book of Proverbs is, how do you live well? Um, now there are, things, there are things about our particular day and age that, that, that hinder us from listening to the Proverbs well. Um, in fact, I, I, I would argue that, that oftentimes there are things, kind of predispositions, things in the water um, that, that, we're, that, that, that kind of mark our lives and mark our culture, such that our approach to Proverbs is often, this is a book of relatively decent suggestions. Like this tells us, I mean, a handful of good ideas, a handful of passe ideas, and a handful of really bad ideas. We tend to approach Proverbs often as, again, a book of nifty suggestions that we can take on and try every once in a while, or not take on and not try at other times, um, and it keeps us from actually listening to and hearing well um, what, uh, what, what God says. Part of that is, is our kind of chronological snobbery. And we just need to think of um, our age as being kind of the apex or the climactic moment in the history of the world in terms of brilliance. We think ourselves brilliant. And all of those other people, like Solomon, well, they were less than brilliant. They might have gotten lucky a few times, um, but we ourselves have arrived at perfect fruitfulness and perfect skill with regards to living and how much sleep we should get and how much 
what honey we should eat and, uh, and, and what we should think about things like sex and food. Um, and so part of it is chronological snobbery, but part of it also is it's a kind of way of thinking about who we are. Like what, what is the self? What, what is Brian Brown? Um, you can put your name there instead of my name. I don't think that many of you are preoccupied with my identity. But oftentimes I think we're preoccupied with our own identities. And this arises out of, and I would love to spend a whole lot of time here, um, uh, really three, three primary thinkers, uh, Freud, Rousseau, and Emerson. Um, we run into a problem of, of an obsession with, a radical misunderstanding of human identity and who the human person is. Last week we talked about the first problem that keeps us from listening to Proverbs well, namely, um, we don't think the world actually exists. We've been trained to think that the world is whatever we want it to be. It can be reformed and remade according to our own image, according to what we desire, according to what we want. And so we tend to not think about categories of good and evil as objective realities. That there is such a thing as good and evil that is always true everywhere at all times and for all people. We don't tend to think of um, there being categories of people like the Bible speaks of, like this text speaks of, of, of the righteous and the wicked. There are real people who are truly wicked and there are real people um, because of the grace of God who are righteous. We don't think of categories like wisdom and foolishness as being objective realities that are always true everywhere. I mean, yet last week we saw that the the foundational to the whole nature of the Proverbs is that there is a real world, like a really real world. And you can either cut with the grain or you can cut against the grain. Um, And if you cut it the wrong way, um, your life will rather be the nice sliced brisket um, will become nasty kind of pile of meat that's probably still decent tasting, but, um, but isn't what it was designed to be. It doesn't look as appetizing. It's not great. But the reality is, is that there is a world. The second thing is um, that, that you are designed, you're, you're made. That your identity and, and what it means to be a man or a woman, what it means to be a person living in the world is not a thing that's up to you. But rather, it's something that is given to you. It's declared to you. It's declared over you. It's hardwired into the very nature of who you are. And that's what I want us to spend our time today. The fundamental reasoning of our day and age flies directly in the face of the way that the Bible describes how you should think about you. Um, In fact, I would argue that, that our age is obsessed with the question, who am I? That question barely comes up in the Bible. Um, Our day and age primarily works in one direction. Who am I? Who do I want to be? And that, that, that question usually reduces down to what do I desire? And that question usually reduces down to who do I want to have sex with? That defines my identity. And then I recreate the world and, how, and I rethink how to live faithfully in the world or well in the world or with skill in the world, primarily in terms of the fulfillment of my own 
desires. So the, 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 the world and, and the water, I think we swim in and has deeply infected the church begins in the opposite place that the Bible begins. It begins with the question of, the question of who am I authentically? Which is a strange question to ask if you look at the rest of the history of mankind. Most people haven't asked that question. You can imagine how much wealth is required as a society to come to the place where you have the time to reconsider the nature of what it means to be human. Most societies have spent all of their time trying to find food or get out of the rain. We are trying to redefine what it means to be a man or a woman. Um, And so it begins with that question and then answers all the other subsequent questions. It answers the question about who God is, not from the standpoint of how has God revealed himself, but fundamentally from the question of like, who do I want God to be? It answers the question of what I should spend my time doing in my life, not from the question of who is God and what is God commanded, but from the question of like, what do I want to spend my time doing? What, what, what do I find fun or satisfying or pleasurable? It defines the question, what is a man or what is a woman? Not again in terms of who God is and what God has said, but fundamentally in terms of like, what do I want a woman to be or a man to be? Um, a few of us went to hear Jordan Peterson speak a few months ago. Um, and uh, he, um, <laughs> during his talk, I think it was right at the beginning, uh, he, he said that he had, you know, you have someone come and he's a therapist. Someone comes to speak to him and says, I, it's a man that comes and speaks to him and says, I feel like a woman. And Jordan says, what in the world does that even mean? And how would you know? We, 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 we've recreated and reformed the world such that it, um, it, it matches our desires rather than something that is actually there. Um, I think there's four things that I'm going I'm to summarize that underlie this that I think, I, I, I hope we'll see that Proverbs 4 confronts these things, subverts these things, and shows us a far better happier, more joyful, more fruitful way. First is kind of this therapeutic age is obsessed with the question, who am I? The answer to this question is answered from the inside. It's not something that's received from outside of us. Um, it's not something that we receive from um, God speaking through his word. It's not something we fundamentally receive from our parents um, or from our tribes or, or, or really from what we do. Um, rather, it, it becomes this kind of existential, angst-ridden, feeling-driven um, exploration of what do I feel, what do I desire, what do I want, what do I hate, what do I, um, what, what do I want, quite apart from everything else. Um, Fathers in this schema are almost always a problem. Um, the only good thing a father or a mother could ever do is simply affirm what you express as um, your inner idea of who you are. So fathers and mothers aren't there to, to call you to conform to something, um, to strive for something. Um, they're, not, they're not to call you to kind of um, come under something external to who you are, but rather simply um, to, to over and over again bless what you say you want to be, um, your deepest authentic self as it's seen. 
um, the, the sin of our lives is to be inauthentic, to wear masks, to conform. Think about how many Disney movies, like all of them for the last 10 years or so. Like the entire narrative is like son or daughter in a tribe or a family and they don't fit in. Like they want them to be a nice princess or a nice hunter boy or a nice whatever oppressive mom and dad. They mean well. They're oppressive. Trying to get them to conform to something. Then they go through a crisis. Daughter finds out she shoots ice lasers out of her fingers, I think. I don't remember. I saw that movie and she sings this terrible song. Um, <laughs> it just gets stuck everywhere. It just gets played and you can walk into a room. It could have been played a year ago and you just still hear it. Um, so she doesn't want to be the nice princess. The boy doesn't want to be the nice hunter boy or whatever. And so they run away or they have to go on some great adventure that subverts all of the expectations of their society, of their family, of their... And then on this adventure, they discover their true selves. Then it comes back to a resolution of the family accepting them for who they actually are and they stop trying to get them to conform to some outward image of what they should be and that is the story of wisdom of our age see it it's everywhere like literally everywhere who is the wicked stepmother aunt in what's that other Disney movie Tangled I could do this for hours (laughs) the long hair person what is it she keeps her Tied up, conformed, just to stay and live in a tower. Now, children, if you ever have a wicked stepmother and she wants to lock you in a tower for the rest of your life, there is something truly wrong with that. (laughs) But the metaphor in the movie is designed to tell you um, that, that all conformity is like a cage. All external expectations or definitions of who you are and what you should be doing with your life, those are wicked. Those are bad. You should... Rebel against them. You should break off from these things. Parents, you must affirm forever whatever it is that your child declares to you to be their authentic self. This is kind of the narrative of our age. So I am my desire. I am whatever I want to be. I am, and this is the the irony of our age, whom I am defined by, think about the language of this age, particularly this month. I am defined by whomever I desire to have an orgasm with. Now, now just stopping for a moment how commonsensical that seems in our age, and yet how horrifically reductionistic it is. You are reduced to your particular sexual desires. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're today and you're, you've maybe wandered in, someone invited you, uh, we're a church downtown, so you thought, we'll go to a church downtown. I, I, I want you to just stop for a moment and think about the nature of a society 
that defines human beings and their standing in that society by with whom they want to have sex. That's a terrifyingly small reductionistic vision of what it means to be human. We're going to talk about sex in a few weeks. I don't want to get stuck there. We essentially have designed a world where, where we are not given our identity, given our vocation, um, given who we are, but rather the whole of life is about, um, has been redefined as I must discover who I am from inside of myself. Um, I must design my life such that it reflects accurately what I think my authentic self is. And let me just tell you, that is a horrifically high pressure way to live in this world. It turns all of life into a kind of 80-year Instagram post. Constantly designing and putting on display for the world who you want to present yourself to be. And frankly, it's the most inauthentic thing imaginable for all of its talk of authenticity. It is a life that, that, that is designed by you inside your own heart, by your own emotions and your own affections and your own desires um, and your own obsessions and your own lusts and your own fears. And it's horribly small. It's horribly small. And, and one of the greatest tragedies in the midst of a society that is sprinting headlong into the tragedy of that way of approaching human life is that so many churches, so many churches and preachers are are tailoring their approach to theology and the Bible and teaching and worship such that God becomes what you want him to be. It happens in small ways as as evangelical churches kind of scrub out the offensive or rough-edged parts of who God is or what God has said. The, The parts that are most offensive in this day and age. It happens when um, we take out the aspects of God that, that would ever confront our own self-realization, our, our own self-expression of what we want in this world. It happens as the law of God and, and commands concerning wisdom or how to live in the world or, or commands um, throughout the New Testament about how to fulfill the law of God in this world are, are reduced to suggestions or kind of just a mushy concept of good feelings and, um, and, and good feelings then are, are how love is defined, which is love, um, which in, in reality, the Bible defines love as one of the most craggy, difficult painful, glorious things in the world and it gets reduced to a kind of mushy, be nice. So rather than confronting this reductionistic um, 
man, dehumanizing spirit that marks our age and giving the world something of substance and beauty and glory. Um, Christians and churches right along with them far too often are simply conforming and reshaping Christianity and biblical teaching such that it simply becomes another way to aim at self-realization. And it's just lame. Is it okay if I just say that? You know, it's false teaching. It should be really serious. But it's also just really dumb. Like, who wants to worship, like, worship and obey a God that you made up? Like, who thinks we should sing vigorously? There was some vigorous singing today, by the way. Good job. Sing vigorously in the presence of a God who doesn't offend anybody, who doesn't terrify anybody, whose judgments are non-existent, whose love is squishy, warm mud. That's just dumb. Like, it's a really dumb hobby. And, 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 And so Christians, like, stop that. And secondly, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I I don't say this as a kind of piercing, accusational judgment. I just say that, like, what's on offer from the world around you in terms of how you would go about defining who you are and how you should live in the world? It's just devastatingly lame. It's just fruitless. It's frustrating. And all it will give you for the rest of your life is this overwhelming burden to kind of invent yourself and reinvent yourself over and over and over and over again. So how does Proverbs 4 confront this? Let's look at five particular ways that Proverbs 5 confronts it. And the general kind of undergirding way that it confronts it, and then we're going to take out five in particulars, um, is that whereas the world starts with, I must discover myself, and then everything else must conform to that realization. Um, I discover who I am, what I want to be, what I desire, um, what do I want to be in the world, and then I rethink of God or find texts that conform God to, or just simply pick a new religion um, to, to make God conform to what I want. Um, I I created ethics and a morality and a sense of beauty and what is true around what I want and who I think I am. And so I begin with me and kind of a self-definition and I work out from there to figure out how I should live in the world. The Bible works in almost the exact opposite direction. And what you'll see in Proverbs 4 is that the Bible starts with God. It starts with the world that God has made. That all of that is there and exists and doesn't care what you think, and isn't looking for suggestions about how he should be. It's one of the best things in the universe about God. He never shows up and asks for a 360 review. He doesn't come and say, hey, we're going to do some interviews. Chandler, how do you think I did this year? Doesn't sit down with Nathan, say, hey, how do you think I did leading these people over here? I get it. The pandemic was a little much, but I had to do something. 
He never does that. Which means he doesn't like take suggestions from us about how the world should be. And it's wonderful. Like, he's not like a collaborative thinker. Let's collaborate and come up with a new world. No, he just creates a world and he just is in absolute perfection and beauty and glory and majesty and authority and holiness, terrifying holiness and and wonderful grace. And then all of that then gets expressed as he speaks into existence a world that is there. We just drove a lot in the last two or three weeks. And so I listened to 36 hours of Lonesome Dove Drove to Montana, drove all over. And, and I was trying to articulate, um, it's a mystery to my wife as to why I like this book so much. It's tragic and sad and horrible. Awful things happened to everyone you love in the story. Um, and I told her that I think at the end, the reason I love the story is that the world in that story simply is. Like, all of your protests about what you think the world should be or how you think that snake should react or, or, or what should happen when you go into this river it just comes crashing against reality. And reality doesn't move. It's just there. You see, the Bible moves from the place that there is a God, a God who doesn't take suggestions, doesn't change, um, isn't interested in your opinions about how he could do a better job being God. Um, he just absolutely is there. And then he speaks into existence and sustains, the Bible says, by the word of his power, which means that moment by moment by moment by moment, he commands the world to be what it is. And again, he's not taking suggestions. It just is there and it works a certain way. And what the Christian worldview begins with is there is a God, a God who speaks and sustains the world as it is and he creates us in it to do certain things and to live according to that word. And then you discover yourself, not by first looking inside, but rather by looking outside and seeing who God is and listening to his word as he speaks and then living in the midst of a world that works certain ways and doesn't work other ways. And so you do stuff in that world, stuff that aligns with and is according to his word. In other words, the Bible moves in almost the exact opposite direction from the way that our society tends to think about reality and identity and how to live skillfully in it. And so the first point, as we look at these five, we learn wisdom or how to live well or how to live fruitfully. Not by listening to ourselves, but by listening to others, particularly our fathers. You see it all from the beginning of chapter four. Actually runs through the whole, whole, the whole book. Listening to fathers, and then particularly when you get to Proverbs 31, which is one of the best chapters in the whole book, listening to our mothers as well. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight or instruction or wisdom. For I give you good precepts, and do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father tender, the only one on the side of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart fold fast to my words, keep my commandments and live, get wisdom, get insight, 
do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. And jump down to verse seven. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. The foundation for where you get wisdom in the Bible is you have to go somewhere else to get it. We don't like that. Because we're, we're frankly not a very humble people. We like to think that we can kind of rationalize our way to our own way of thinking about how the world should work. And we like to think that we can kind of come up with our own systems, our own approaches, our own ways of thinking about the world. But the Bible begins with wisdom is somewhere else. And if you're going to be wise, you have to go and get it. It has to be learned. It has to be received. It's not something that you make. It's not something you design. It's not something you create. It's not something you find innate in yourself. I mean, it's a word spoken outside of yourself and you have to go get it. And in the first place, you should look for it. It's from your father and your mother. Teenagers. The first place you should look for wisdom is from your father and your mother. Teenager. First place you should look for wisdom is from your father and your mother. It's fascinating um, being now very young, um, but getting a little bit older than I was before, which is how aging works. I'm still very, very, very young. Athletic. It is, you, you, I, went, you, I don't know how many, I, a lot of people do this, but, but you go through this phase where you, you kind of cast off and all you see is the folly of your parents. <laughs> they went to that kind of church. <laughs> they had a special where there were people in a musical ensemble would hold mics with little colored things on top of the mics and they would sing a special song during their worship service. <laughs> Idiots. Those we begin to kind of cast off or reject or to define ourselves as our departure from our parents. We think we're so wise. The Bible says that's folly. And it's interesting now getting here, I'm like, man, we should have a special ensemble with <laughs> microphones and a little <laughs> not really. But like like you begin to understand and begin to see, like, I actually might my mom and my dad were wise. doesn't mean you follow them all the way. It doesn't mean you agree with their sins or you agree with the places where they contradicted the word of God or they weren't conformed to or submitted to the word of God. But you begin to find that God actually intended to and has given you a remarkable gift through your mother and your father. Second, we learn to live well through a stubborn determination to learn how to live well. In other words, this isn't something you go and get once, but rather, um, listen to the language that you should orient, you should hold fast, um, you should not forsake, you should cling to and embrace, you should prize her highly, you should desire her and delight her, um, delight in her. Um, you, you should, uh, it, it portrays wisdom as a desirable woman that, that you should pursue. And so first, you, you should receive wisdom um, as God has surrounded you with it and given it to you from outside. And second, you should be persistent. Um, um, like a, 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 a single bachelor, desperate to get a wife, 
who sees a desirable woman and orients his life to getting her. That's how you should go after wisdom. Um, You should want her, desire her, hold fast to her, embrace her, not forsake her. If you're going to get wisdom, um, if you're going to live well and skillfully in the world, it means you must be determined to have it, to hold it, to keep it. Which means you are determined and humble enough to go and find it outside of yourself. Third, it says here that we will learn to live well by avoiding the company and the path of the wicked. Verse 14, do not enter the path or the way of living of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it, do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on for they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. There is something evangelistic about wickedness and folly. And please note how closely related um, Proverbs, as, um, as it seeks to, how closely related the concept of wisdom and righteousness and folly and wickedness are. In other words, wisdom and folly aren't amoral categories. In other words, they're not merely suggestions. They're actually, they have moral weight to them. And what you should know in living in a day and age like ours and living in a city like ours is that evil is evangelistic. Wickedness is evangelistic. It cannot sleep until it makes someone stumble. It seeks to evangelize you. It seeks to evangelize your children. It seeks to make you, cause you, entice you to walk in the way of folly, to turn aside to the left or to the right. So you'd see two things in this command. That there is such a thing as wickedness that is objective and clear and real and, and, and isn't primarily about your motivations, but is primarily about where your feet walk and what you do. Which is kind of a stunning thing about the Bible. It evaluates righteousness and wickedness not first and foremost by what, why did you do what you did. It, it, it simply evaluates what did you do. Well, that was wicked. Well, that was righteous. That was foolish. Well, that was wise. And so you must avoid, resist the enticement to stumble to walk in the way of violence, to find nourishment in wickedness and violence. Fourth, this is where we'll almost end. We learn to live well by guarding our hearts and paying close attention to what we do with our bodies. Listen to verse 23. Keep your heart or guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then your ways will be sure. 
Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Now first, keep your heart or guard your heart with all vigilance. Thousands of youth ministers have made lots and lots of money. Not really, youth ministers never make lots of money. But have made some measure of money by teaching this verse, guard your heart, is having something to do with the movies you watch. Like all those Disney movies we talked about earlier. Guard your heart. Don't watch laser ice out of her fingers, lady. Don't watch that stuff. Guard your hearts. Don't read stuff that's bad for you. Guard your hearts. Don't listen to bad music because that will come in and infect your pure and holy heart. Um, In other words, guard your heart has been interpreted um, as the way a city guard would guard the walls of a city. In other words, we have this city, we have this nice, happy, good, pure, glorious city, and um, this is a text that commands you to stand vigilant on the walls of the city, which is your heart, and shoot all the bad things that would come in and corrupt your good heart. That is the opposite, almost exact opposite, of what this text means. Um, Think of Jesus when he says, um, it's not what you take into you which makes you unclean. It's not what comes into your mouth which makes a person unclean. It is what proceeds out of your mouth that makes you unclean. Um, the, the image here is your heart is a dangerous prisoner. I actually titled this sermon. You never get to see my titles because they're usually for me. Make me chuckle. It's guard your heart because it may try and kill you. Um, the heart is like this dangerous criminal. And the heart in the Bible, by the way, represents your affections, your desires, your longings, um, your emotional responses to reality. Um, and, and this is a text about it's a dangerous, dangerous criminal. And it wants to break out and murder you. And so your job is to keep watch on it, to, to keep hold of it, to make sure the wrong stuff doesn't get out and come out. Um, And it doesn't come out and murder everyone or destroy your life or lead you into folly or or lead you into rebellion against God or lead you into things that would hate your neighbor. Um, When it says, keep your heart or guard your heart with all vigilant um, because from it flow the springs of life, Um, that that springs of life image is, is, is that you will drink what your heart produces. And it will produce either something sour, something poisonous, something that leads to death, um, or it will produce things that lead to life. Therefore, keep watch on it. Guard it. We live in a day and age in which the emotions above all else must be expressed, must be allowed to run free and wild. And we were in Montana. We stayed on a farm a few weeks ago. And I've been watching ranching shows recently. One of the things my wife pointed out to me, give her credit for this, um, is that they always have to break the horse. Like the, the horse, if it's left to just run free and wild, it's very bad for the cowboys. You can just bad. You have to bring the horse under your control so that it can lead you where you want it to lead you. It can lead you to places of life and fruitfulness and goodness. 
So it is with our hearts, our emotions, our affections. If you live such a life that they're simply allowed to run free, to be wild, to do whatever they want and go after whatever they want, it will lead you nowhere but to death, to pain, like very painful legs, seat region. But if the, the, the bit is put in, if you guard it carefully, if you um, lead your emotions and your affections to submit to what God commands, it can lead you to life, to wisdom, to joy, to fruitfulness. It's one of the most startling things in our age about the Bible is that it commands your emotions everywhere. And it commands you to sing with rejoicing, to give to be filled with thankfulness and gratitude. Not just to say thank you, but to be filled with gratitude. It commands you to desire, desire emotion, to desire wisdom, to want it. Not just to go through a set of motions that you would do if you wanted it, but to actually desire those things. So you must keep your heart, keep watch over your heart, guard it. Command it. Bring it into conformity. Evaluate its impulses, its desires, its fears, its anger, its happiness to make sure that they accord with or align with reality. And then he goes on to, keep, he, to, to command particular actions um, with regards to the body. You keep watch on your heart, you keep it at bay, you keep it under conformity to God's word, and then you act with your eyes and your hands and your feet and your mouth especially in ways that align with the words of God. In other words, the Bible says, guard your heart, keep it at bay, and then speak in certain ways, act in certain ways, walk in certain ways, be diligent to put your effort to those positive actions with your body. This is how our Father commands us to live wisely in the world. Not in this constant desire to find our authentic self or invent our authentic self or to portray to the world who we want them to think we are, but rather to gladly and joyfully receive who we are from him, um, to, to conform our lives to his word, to conform our emotions and our affections and our desires to his word, and then to concentrate, focus our life on becoming skilled with how we speak and skilled with where we walk, and skilled with how we use our hands and how we live in the world, such that it increasingly gives, um, gives rise to fruitfulness in the world. And, and some of you will be asking in closing as we get ready to come to this table, where's the gospel in all of this? The, the gospel in Proverbs 4 comes with the rather remarkable, remarkable truth that in Jesus Christ, God is our Father. One of the fruits of the gospel is that you've been adopted by the God of the universe, the God who made all of it, the God who is wisdom itself. Such that not only has he given us fathers, some of them good fathers, but he himself speaks to us and instructs us and imparts to us wisdom and teaches us how to live faithfully in the world. And he does that graciously 
and kindly and mercifully. He does that as a father. So, so let us pray, prepare ourselves to come to this table to be fed again by our Father. And so God, we come acknowledging and confessing that one of the primary, foundational fruits of the Spirit is that we come to you and we cry out, Abba, Father. That we come to you as children come to a good father, a loving father, a merciful father, a wise father, and a father who provides. And so God, we come to this table to eat of the food that you provide in the body and the blood of Jesus.